in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today for several times in a row together, you and I, my good friend, Chad Robinson. How are you today? I feel like the turtle song was just playing there, you know, so happy together. <laughs> I can't, yeah, for real. We are, <laughs> the, the two of us, uh, I, for briefly there, I, I was... Uh, again, turned into a Chad invasion of the body snatchers. We had two Chads, and they were bringing me into the Chad fold. Uh, yes. Yeah, and, but I, I'm back to myself, uh, just the two of us, and we are lucky to have a guest. And awesome. our guest today is Andres Morel Pacheco. Say hi. Uh, hi there, everybody. Coming in today to help us talk about a Born on the 4th of July from 1989. Andres, you were the one that pointed us in this direction of this movie. Uh, what what was on your mind when you were saying, "Let's tackle this"? Well, I, I would say I'm a, I'm a fan of the of the the war movie genre. Uh, there's there's a lot to be taken out of it, especially for uh, pieces that were done about movies, uh, you know, the conflicts during the 20th century. Uh, and I, I like to think that the one that I, that we chose for today is is a pretty pretty remarkable standout of the of that genre. Remarkable indeed. Before we get into that movie, I would like to ask you, Andres, what was the last movie you saw before this? I watched uh, Hell House LLC, which is a, a horror movie. Oh, uh, love it! Yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty cool, an interesting take on the the, the found footage kind of documentary uh, style horror film, uh, and there was just a lot of really interesting uh, devices that were used in the in the film, and the setting was really cool. And so, yeah, it, it's one of my favorite found footage movies right up there with like rare exports things like that uh i i would i would say i'm a i'm kind of a discerning horror uh horror enjoyer i i don't i spend a lot more time looking for horror movies that i think are worthwhile than actually watching horror movies uh which means i don't actually watch a whole lot of horror movies whereas i think chad you do the opposite which is that as soon as a blip hits your radar you are tuning in Yes, I am completely not discriminating at all. In fact, the last film I watched, <laughs> it was a horror movie with Fred Armisen in it. So <laughs> let that marinate for a second. The film's called Too Late. It's about a comedy club owner and his assistant, and his assistant helps feed the owner people. He eats people. So take that as you will. Well, I guess I actually watched something that uh, is maybe horror adjacent. I was uh, really into a Danny Elfman soundtrack from one of the last movies that Chad and I worked together on, which was To Die For. Um, and I was thinking that it was reminding me of the Beetlejuice soundtrack. So I just went ahead and rewatched it. Mm, but how many times did you say it? <laughs> I am always extremely careful with that. I'm not going to tempt that. I'm definitely not going to tempt Candyman either. 
but yeah, not a not not too scary of a movie, but a, a great one, um, and a favorite of mine. And speaking of favorites, um, as far as a war movie, what would be uh, one of your favorites, Andres? Saving Private Ryan is is probably the the movie that I, I was the first one I saw that really stuck with me. Uh, I've seen a lot of other war movies in my life, and I think I saw others uh, before that just didn't impact me the same way. But Saving Private Ryan was a really good mixture of really great cinematography, uh, storytelling, uh, the special effects and practical effects were really fantastic. Uh, the the acting, going back and watching that movie, I've seen it a couple of times, and I didn't realize how many uh, A-list uh, actors uh, were actually uh, hiding in the woodwork uh, without me right. realizing that they were actually famous the entire time. Uh, As Vin Diesel. Yeah, Vin Diesel was the one that I was the most surprised about. <laughs> that actually, I, Saving Private Ryan is probably not what he's best uh, known for these days. <laughs> <laughs> Outrunning submarines with John C. <laughs> Precisely. <Yes. laughs> what, what else was he involved in? Chronicles of Riddick, man. Great Chronicles movie. of Riddick. Pitch, uh, Black. Pitch Black is great. I do like Pitch Black. I think he does the voice of Groot. And the uh, Guardians of the That's Galaxy series. He does. He also does The Last Witch Hunter based on his D&D character. So there's that. Oh, I didn't that know he rules. played D&D. That's pretty cool. John Flack, who used to, uh, uh, he's been on this podcast quite a bit. He would put on Platoon, another Oliver Stone. So we would see that a lot. Glory, though. I really like Glory. I'm in American history. Uh, I hold a master's degree in it. So, yeah. This hits the Civil War, Matthew Broderick. It's very touching. It's close enough to the truth. It's not like Mel Gibson Patriot, although I still <laughs> kind of defend that. That's fun. The ghost. It, it's fun. It's just really, really wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Glory is my favorite. It also includes one of my uh, favorite characters in in film, who is a uh, Colonel Tavington, uh, yes. the the red the the dragoon in. Uh, the Patriot, uh, and and you know what I I didn't Bannister think about Tarleton. that. Yeah. <laughs> That's, tell me about Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I love love that scene. Love that guy. Uh, I like that movie a lot, but it it is not my favorite war movie. Mine is one that I watched a whole lot. Full Metal Jacket. Uh, oh, is that a required movie for like late nights? I saw that almost every single time I'd stay over with someone. It. I think it is. It kind of depends on your friend group. But for us, it was, and most that means I've seen the first, we'll say third of it, a hundred times as opposed to the whole movie a dozen times. Because <laughs> uh, you, you start it and then, you know, you fall asleep. I will revisit that one. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a movie I, I probably need to revisit because I, I only have uh, fleeting impressions of it because I think I might have seen it in high school a couple of times under similar circumstances uh, that you described, Dustin. Uh, it wasn't something that I really paid attention to much, but I it was kind of in uh, my my wheelhouse just because it was a Kubrick and a little bit edgy, which um, you know that's that's Kubrick's uh, signature. I think Russell's actually attested to what you've said, Dustin. I want to say Russell has joked with me that he's never seen the second half of this movie. Like we would always fall asleep pretty much as soon as they went to Vietnam. Yeah maybe hard to say easier to fall asleep to we're talking about a war movie but <laughs> apparently that's what happened with us um vietnam war movie uh, let's let's talk about born on the fourth of july it is starring tom cruise kira sedgwick raymond j barry jerry levine frank whaley and willem dafoe released in 1989 
It grossed a little over $70 million. It was the 17th in the box office that year. It had uh, placed just behind Turner and Hooch and just ahead of Uncle Buck. That's <laughs> such a weird sandwich. It's a, a contrast sandwich right there. Number one movie that year was Batman, uh, which uh, deserves it, not clearly, but I would say that there, there were three movies that, that stood out, aside from Turner and Hooch and Uncle Buck, um, is number four and number five, respectively. Look Who's Talking <laughs> and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Hey, Rick Moranis was hot back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I'm just thinking to myself, we've got we've got Look Who's Talking, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Turner and Hooch, Uncle Buck. I don't know if those movies sniff the top ten today. And the idea that these movies were so high at that time was, was kind of surprising to me looking back. Especially, uh, look who's talking. I did not realize how popular it was. <laughs> John Travolta. It'd be like telling me Baby's Day Out was in the top ten. The most referenced obscure movie <laughs> of all time in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Number two that stood out was... Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is my favorite Indiana Jones. Mm, I will, I will okay. second gets, that. I think that's, that's gets my favorite as well. Beaten by Batman. Huh. Beaten by a, Batman. Settles a debate. Batman uh, wins against Indy. <laughs> I, well, I, I don't know if that ever really should have been a debate, truly. <laughs> but I think the, the other one that really stood out to me there for that year, for 89, was when you think about how big Disney movies are now and how a Disney movie or a Pixar movie is going to just make so much money. The Little Mermaid came out that year, and I know that that's a favorite of many. It uh, was 13th in the box office, beaten by Look Who's Talking and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I think that's a, yeah, that's a pretty remarkable observation. Um, I, I can't even fathom a world in which the, you know, the Disney juggernaut uh, doesn't, you know, break the box office every time they, they release a new animated uh, feature of some sort. Well, uh, as far as uh, Born on the Fourth of July, it has... A uh, 7.2 out of 10 IMDb rating. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics give it an 85%. The audience gives it 76%. Uh, several Academy Award nominations. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. And it did win for Best Director, Oliver Stone, and Best Film Editing for uh, David Brenner and Joe Hushing. Um, at the Golden Globe, the four that it was nominated for, it won uh, Best Motion Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Screenplay. But, you know, th these were all awards, I think, worthy. Uh, I think we all knew that it had the accolades. Uh, but, Andres, had you seen this movie before? No, I hadn't. Uh, it was it was something that had kind of flown around in my recommendations from here or there for a while, and I finally sat down to watch it for this program, and I uh, was really blown away. We don't get that that often. Uh, my my last uh, my last dealer's choice was a movie that I purposefully had not seen before, and you hadn't seen this either. Chad uh, had had you, and were you expecting anything coming into it? I hadn't, and you just gave me far too much credit about knowing the accolades and everything else. So, peek behind the curtain here, was given this list, and at the time I was watching a Willem Dafoe movie, and I saw Willem Dafoe was on Born of the Fourth of July. Like, you know what? Let's do that. No other research or consideration went into this movie, 
So <laughs> completely blindsided by it. Uh, I had no expectations. I was sort of expecting, I guess, Platoon once I found out it was Oliver Stone and right. <laughs> set in Vietnam. This is not Platoon. They're not in Vietnam very long. It's like, it's a reverse Full Metal Jacket. You're in Vietnam for like the first, I don't know, 20 minutes, and then you're back. So yeah, this was a new experience for me, and I'm excited to talk about it. And how excited were you after an hour and 40 minutes to say, oh, hey, there's Willem Dafoe? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, like, it, it, is this a Gary Oldman thing? Is he like a chameleon here? And I just don't, un I don't think he can hide his face. And then, yeah. It did take an hour and said, oh, there he is. Yeah, there he is. I showed up in a big way, uh, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Memorable part, for sure. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, well, I, I knew it had accolades, but I did not know well, what this movie was about. And I think if, um, unless you had it recommended to you or somebody were to, to tell you about it, this movie really takes you on a, on a journey. When I sat down to watch this movie, I would say that I was uh, under the expectation that I had a vague idea about uh, the, the contents of the movie. And so I was kind of looking at all the way towards the beginning uh, to see what kind of context uh, Oliver Stone was going to give. As soon as we left Vietnam, I expected to be there quite a bit more and have more context. It's like, oh, this movie, not like Vietnam was a happy place. But this movie is going to spend the next whatever it was, hour and 40 minutes, just depressing the heck out of me, isn't it? Uh, well, I would say, yeah, I think there's definitely a, a, a really distinct tonal shift. Uh, and, and as much as as soon as you get back from Vietnam, you know, Ronnie is dealing with his injury. That's really where the, the movie completely uh, changes tone. I think up until that point, it, it could have been very similar to a lot of other war movies that I've seen. Good point. Good point. It could have been very similar to other war movies, and it certainly is not. I think the three of us maybe weren't prepared to see pain or anguish in so many ways, but we're not going to start talking about that yet. We're going to take an advertisement break. Uh, if you have not seen this movie, now's a great time to first prepare yourself, <laughs> then... Uh, watch this movie, but we got to take a break and then we'll come back with the plot summary where we're going to spoil the movie. Go ahead and pause, come on back after the break, and Chad will do the plot summary. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. And welcome back. We have Chad prepared for a plot summary of Born on the Fourth of July. Get your whatever comforting item, blanket, food, whatever, before I read this. So, Ron Kovic, he grew up as a starry-eyed patriot in Massapequa, New York in the 1950s. 
It's really inspired by President John F. Kennedy's inaugural address and joins the United States Marine Corps. He's promptly sent to Vietnam to fight. On his second tour of duty, his unit unintentionally slaughters a Vietnamese village, mistaking them for combatants. The unit then comes under enemy fire and Ron mistakenly kills a member of his own platoon. In another firefight, Ron's team is ambushed and he is critically wounded. This is about where we talk about the tonal shift. He winds up paralyzed from the waist down and spends several months recovering in a veteran's hospital. Conditions inside the hospital are really poor and Ron feels rightfully neglected. He spirals into a cycle of alcoholism and has flashbacks due to things like a baby crying. Ron meets his old high school sweetheart. Her name's Donna. She's sort of become a hippie protester, uh, and she's protesting Kent State shootings, and the demonstration is violently broken up by the police, furthering Ron's disillusionment with America. Ron's parents uh, can't really deal with his alcoholism and just spiraling out of control, so they send him to Villa Dolce to recover. It's known as a haven for Vietnam veterans. It's down in Mexico. There, he solicits prostitutes and befriends another paraplegic named Charlie. So from Mexico, Ron decides to find the parents of the young member of his platoon he accidentally killed so he can ask for forgiveness. The parents grant that forgiveness, but the young man's wife cannot bring herself to forgive Ron. He then joins the Vietnam Veterans Against the War organization and winds up attending the Republican National Convention, where Richard Nixon is given his speech. Anti-war sentiment is received about as well as you would expect during a Richard Nixon speech. He spit on, threatened everything else. And the film ends with Ron delivering a public address at the Democratic National Convention, endorsing a draft dodger for president. So there you have it. We travel with Ronnie... There's several parts of his life. We start when he's really young in Massapequa, New York. And uh, I, I think it is something to be said about capturing the, the youth, capturing the excitement of this is American life at the time. Um, and even though I mentioned to our listeners to prepare yourself for some pain, and then Chad told you to go get your comfort blanket, um, well, you don't need it yet. If things are kind of true blue American, and uh, you, know, you mentioned with uh, listening to the words of, of John F. Kennedy and his mother saying to him, I had a dream of you in front of, in front of people and you were saying great things. For, the, for this first part of the movie where he's young, and we're getting kind of an idea, I, I think maybe it's when he's a teenager in high school on the wrestling team, we start to get an idea of what his values are, of what the values of young men, young patriots are. Um, how do you feel about that general feeling of, oh, the, the war's on and we got to go help. We got to go do our part. That's, that's what is driving him, or at least part of what's driving him. Um, anything to say about that drive towards becoming something? Oh yeah, I think those are those are all really good observations, and I agree completely with them. The whole first twenty minutes, uh, especially the Fourth of July parade uh, at the beginning of the sequence, was was like a Norman Rockwell painting. Uh, you know, quintessential yeah. Americana. Uh, you know, this is everything that the 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 white suburban American life was. 
uh, at its finest. And um, but yeah, going back to the the, the themes that you were uh, that you asked about, I think uh, you know patriotism was uh, was definitely kind of uh, thick in the air. Uh, at least that's what's conveyed in the film, or Oliver Stone chooses to to, to focus on. And the other thing that I, I uh, that really jumped out at me was uh, the theme of masculinity. Uh, I think uh, that was something uh, separate from patriotism. The the notion of uh, these are the things that that men do, uh, not just uh, as far as patriotic acts, but as far as like acts of strength and and acts of uh, perseverance and and uh, dominance of self uh, and discipline, uh, like joining the uh, Marine Corps whenever the recruiters come to his school is is kind of portrayed as an act of of, uh, of uh, the utmost discipline that not every man is capable of doing, not just something that's a patriotic duty that everybody should do. Uh, his wrestling environment, uh, or like his uh, the environment that he was in on the wrestling team at his school, uh, you know, his instructor, his coach is essentially a drill sergeant, the way that he's barking at him, uh, you know, so roughly. Uh, and uh, it, it's uh, everything, you know, is being called into question, like his his ability and his weakness. And, you know, they're being pushed uh, to to uh, behave more strongly. And it, it's, it becomes really clear that Ronnie has these really, you know, high expectations for himself, uh, both patriotically and, and in terms of masculinity that are, are really, uh, really strongly uh, portrayed everywhere around him in his life. It seems like he's getting it. Uh, uh, on all sides, uh, at least what's what's shown in the beginning of the film. Yeah, definitely. And they didn't really let you reminisce and be happy about childhood for long. Like, they give you early foreshadowing. Those kids, they're ambushed while they're outside playing soldier, and then there's the hard cut to the spinning firework, and we have this happy parade, and he's pointing out, he's like, look, Dad, a soldier. And it it is. It's this American patriotism. You know, most of this town, it was a military town. So we've got generations. Most of them had grandfathers and fathers that fought in several different wars. But then things happen. There's a slight trumpet stutter, and it's just a masterful touch. But the trumpet misses its note, and they mess up intentionally here for the soundtrack. And we start seeing the soldiers in wheelchairs in the parade. Yep. And they don't look really happy. Mm-hmm. And a firework goes off and one of the soldiers flinches. Right. One yeah. of the veterans flinches. And then it just gets sadder and sadder. The people in the background are still cheering their heads off. But you see people that are missing limbs and just the shell-shocked look. So Oliver Stone's really not letting us drink in this American pie for very long. It's like, yeah. Uh, there might be something wrong with the image you're conjuring up of the majorette twirling and grinning and the people in old cars just happily waving to you. And you're a grand old flag playing, and, and yeah. it is, <laughs> and, but, and it's a marching band tune, and, and things are happy, you know. I can imagine the smell of apple pie or a candy, you know, just just some, uh, something so, so like a, like a burger off the grill, so, so much... <laughs> Even the the name of the movie is is about uh, like these ideals, and uh, I'm glad you brought up that that trumpet. It it is a trumpet. At first, I thought it sounded kind of like a bugle, but when you get Oliver Stone gives you like here come the veterans, and there is sort of some excitement. But then you look directly into their faces and see the the lines on them, and you see the 
lasting effects of what it was that they went through. And we're still in sort of Americana happy land at this time. But we, we are shown that this is going to be a theme uh, here, is that what they went through was tough. And maybe we're, what we're not talking about here is the war itself. It's, uh, it's, the movie is going to present what comes after that is, that is tough. Um, but with the, with the drill sergeant-like wrestling coach, uh, Andres, you said he was, he was getting it on all sides. Like, like he was almost getting pushed. Like, this is, this is what you do. Our dad's got to be, that's, that's what the line was. Our mm-hmm. dad's got to be in World War II. But I think he gets a lot of pressure from his mom during this oh, yeah. time Oh, yeah, as absolutely. Well. It's very asymmetric. Uh... There's definitely an emphasis on being a winner. I thought it was so odd. Yes. We mentioned the wrestling match. The town boos him after he loses. He's talking about being the best and cutting weight and everything else and how he's just going to be the best. And then he gets pretty much dominated <laughs> and the town boos him. Like, wow. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that, that's harsh. Very, yeah, very the, traumatic. The, yeah, it's, you know, he's, he's pushed uh, in this way. The, the, the culture is the of masculinity as well, what you said, Andres. This is a, like a dream scenario. This is what he's meant to do, mm-hmm. Ronnie. He, he, he is meant to do this. But I'm, I'm reminded of the, the prom scene. Uh, even still, it's, it's, it's 28 minutes before we get to Vietnam. And there's an interesting little uh, vignette about uh, this movie could have taken so many different directions than the one that it did. And it has the acclaim that it does because of the direction that it took. But, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, a guy, guy runs through the rain to go kiss his sweetheart at prom. And um, at this point, you're thinking like, huh, I guess maybe we're going to see what, what comes of that relationship afterward. And then we take a pretty serious turn. Uh, would anything else stand out about that initial first 28 minutes of, of Americana before we, go, um, before we go over to Vietnam? It is such a carefree attitude at this point. Like this, this made me laugh because it's just different culture. But he's sitting in a diner with his friends reading a Playboy, like the, <laughs> these are teenagers, and he's just casually reading it through. Maybe he's actually reading the articles, like everyone always claims. <laughs> like we say, yeah. But yeah, the wa- waitress is just like, "Yep, whatever." Teenage boys reading pornography in the middle of my restaurant—that's fine. Uh, it, it's just such a different time. You've got the Yankee hats. And there's only one guy. It it does remind me a lot of kind of the sentiment uh, behind 9-11. Obviously, we were actually attacked uh, for 9-11, but there was a lot of banding together and we've got to do something. We've got to fight something. This was... Yeah, rallying around the flag, I think, is, is the phenomenon. That's what they call it. Oh, yeah. 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 But there's only one friend out of all their group of friends. And we find out, I think, three of them perished. But there's one friend that's like, I'm not fighting. And to Andres's point, they're making fun of that guy. They yeah. are calling him every name. Yeah, the they're absolutely roasting him. Yeah. yeah. And Steve. he's like, I'm, I'm going to college. Yeah. 
Yeah, Steve, Steve Boyer, who uh, we will see a little later. In, in Brilliant movie. ideas by Steve. I'm stealing that. <laughs> yeah, his, his, his burger his whole you know his hole in the center burger scheme is pretty brilliant uh, i will yes. say so saves him forty thousand dollars a year <laughs> brilliant brilliant why didn't they catch on really brilliant uh and you know what uh i will say uh mostly positive uh, uh work communication uh, out of him as well um <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah apart from you know pinching his his uh his waitresses and things like that yeah aside from that yeah um yeah, he's he's made fun of. Oh yeah, somebody's got to stay home with the women and children. Uh, is what they say about him. He makes the decision to to go to school, as does as does Donna, uh, who goes to Syracuse. Um, and then we we get to the point where we are now, beginning what I thought was going to be um, the majority of the movie. I think was it, it was going to be like, and now we're going to Vietnam, and now we have a war movie, um, and we are seeing. I think. I know what stands out to me first of all. First of all, in this, I'll start with it, is um, there's communication going to Sergeant Ronnie, and almost immediately that communication breaks down. The, 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 he's asked if he sees the rifles in the distance. He doesn't. He lies. Then he tells the troops, hold your fire. Within three seconds, somebody's firing, and then the whole line's firing. Terrible communication breakdown right away um, in this high-stress scenario. Uh, that's the first thing that stuck out to me in this, in this place. What's happening here? Oh, uh, you know, take, take a line from another movie, like, war is hell. But uh, here we have, um, we have this, this communication breakdown. Uh, he says he's on his second tour. What, what about this, this time? We have now moved to Vietnam. What stands out to you? I think the uh, I think yeah like like you said the immediacy of that happening uh, was was it kind of serves to shock you a little bit because it sets the tone too yeah. yeah absolutely and for you know for thirty seconds you're in that scene and then Ronnie uh, or Sergeant Kovac is uh, you know he he's talking to the new recruit from Georgia whose name escapes me at this moment um, Wilson yeah Wilson and. Um, he, he's kind of exuding an air of confidence because, as he says, this is the second tour of duty. Uh, he has uh, kind of a, a small uh, role in command in, in his platoon, and it seems like he's trying to project a, a little bit of confidence and, and security to you know this this new guy who is is kind of unsure uh, about uh, how he how he's going to be doing here, and. And immediately, uh, as as Dustin mentioned, you know that that order and and uh, and, and attempt at at soothing and, and control and exuding confidence and leadership is is thrown asunder by the the chaos that ensues in this in this village that they come upon. Yeah, I was I was struck by a couple of things. One, we never see a jungle, and that's what Vietnam is absolutely famous for. But two, just the contrast between we've talked about full metal jacket one of the worst but more memorable lines of full metal jacket is how can you shoot women and children and the guy says easy you just don't Don't lead lead them as much much. yeah and here we have a complete juxtaposition to that kind of psychopathy of they accidentally kill women and children there's a baby pretty much feeding at the breast here and the response is we didn't do this did we and just 
the shell shock and mm-hmm. the horror. They're horrified. All. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, I was thinking, because having not seen it before, I was, I, I, and now I was preparing for the worst. I was, I was wondering what the response would be from the, the troops coming in. Um, did either of you, this was, this was me, did either of you see the idea of a cover-up or it's like, oh, you know, we can't, we can't let it oh, know absolutely. what happened here? Did you yeah. think that they were going to open fire on the survivors? That's, I, I, I definitely yeah. entertained the possibility. I think I, I had Full Metal Jacket and, uh, and Apocalypse Now on the brain uh, whenever I was thinking about what could happen next. Uh, as they entered the the scene to 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 see you know the damage that they right. caused, uh, and I, I think you know they they do end up uh, having to leave or or flee uh, as as the uh, the, yeah, the, the NBC actually, yeah they actually do show up and then they have to the the situation changes very rapidly uh, and and kind of neglect the the the, the few survivors uh, in treating them uh, of their wounds, but yeah, and this is this is our maybe not exactly the first, but maybe the first memorable taste of real anguish and pain that we see, not just from Tom Cruise, who I think does a great job in this movie showing when he is in some type of pain. Uh, he's yelling, somebody help me, get help. Everyone's yelling, get help. I need help over here. Um, interesting. Perhaps intentional foreshadowing. I need help. But uh, th- they are horrified. They did, they did not intend to do this, unlike the Full Metal Jacket character. But we, we're we're talking about um, an atrocity, and that came from that breakdown of communication. Uh, it it can't. They were told to hold their fire, and then, and then these people die. Then we are uh, we're moving a little bit further, and the the the, the shots of them walking through the uh, the grasslands, uh, or um, I thought there was some really actual like like beautiful camera work with the like the sun in the background the mm-hmm. colors of this of this time in in the uh, in the movie are vib- like vibrant in their own way and really set it apart from the rest of the movie but we 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 see them walk through the patio and then there's another another firefight and this is where we see um we see his injury we see his casualty uh was there anything about the combat here that seemed like oh that's really realistic or like this is cool how they're showing it to either of you two. I would say that um, I, I I enjoyed the camera work immensely uh, for this shot and uh, going back to what you said about the 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 scenery that was set and you know the tone the color tone of the the sunset kind of going over the field behind them uh, the, the 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 kind of like the the amber uh, umber colored grass that they're walking through uh, as they approach the village uh, the there's a really dynamic use of kind of camera technique uh, that I, uh, I I thought was pretty fantastic. You s- during the scene, you see a lot of uh, switching between uh, wide open shots when you get the entire, uh, you know, you get the entire birth of all the soldiers uh, in the regiment. And on top of that, whenever the firefight actually starts, everything becomes very shaky and uh, up close and personal. You know, the, the length of the camera's focus uh, changes, you know, from from wide and and uh, far back all the way to you know, kind of medium range to intimate. Uh, especially when the soldiers, uh, when you're focusing on individual soldiers, uh, you, they they use the the shaky cam very effectively in, in terms of kind of conveying the uh, the the nervousness, the uh, the panic that was going through their minds as they were being ambushed, or at least that's how I felt. Yeah, the confusion and fright. He later describes it to the family of Wilson as 
we were scared. And that's something you usually see from like the fresh-faced recruit, but here you're seeing it from the commander. This was the sergeant that was scared, the sergeant that was confused, and he's firing at his own people. So I thought that was more unique. I'm used to the war movies, the commander being the one to have it together and scream and be able to find it, but you're, we're very isolated. You see everyone just scatter. And uh, that struck me as unique and likely realistic. I mean, we, it hasn't even been that long. We had the famous NFL player who was killed through fr- friendly fire uh, over in uh, Tillman. Operation. Yes, Ra. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I can't remember. Pat Tillman. Yep. Pat Tillman. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Operation um, Enduring Freedom. Yeah. It's the, you know, the, the shot making of, of some of these up close. Uh, and then when, uh, when Ronnie is shot, there's a cool um, overhead scene of him kind of going, um, you know, keeping his eyes up on the perimeter. Uh, but, you know, he, he is, he is injured. Uh, he, he's shot. Um, I thought, I thought, oh, the worst, <laughs> I mean, naively, I guess. He gets shot in the foot. I'm like, okay, you know, I guess that's his injury. Not seeing the rest of what's going to happen to him, uh, which uh, clearly is uh, the, the biggest part of the rest of his story, aside from what he does uh, kind of have to reckon with later, is uh, accidentally, you know, accidentally shooting that, that young um, you know, private Wilt, uh, and then having to go to his superior officer. Uh, that that scene, where it, I was wondering if he would have the courage to say it, it seems as if all American kid would know that I have to tell the truth, right? Something in there because we we also know that he's Catholic. Uh, something in there was, I need to tell the truth. I it's almost as if I didn't think about this while watching the movie. It's like I gotta go confess. I think I I think I've shot him. No, you didn't, son. No, no, it, it, it could have happened. No, I, I think I shot him. I shot him. No, quit saying that. I mean, how many times does that happen? Uh, like, like four or five times before you, the commanding officer, like, kind of uh, blows his top, yeah, right? Yeah, something like that. But he was pretty uh, persistent. Uh, I mean, at, at this point, I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, this is going to be the, the thing that he has to hold on to. But really, it's him being a wheelchair user for the rest of the movie. Or at least immediately after return, and we are brought to, uh, with cheery soundtrack, uh, we we are brought to the hospital. Um, tell me about tell me about this hospital. Uh, this ex- <laughs> this hospital was an experience. Um, no other way to really put it. It was you're kind of shocked uh, immediately by kind of the the poor state of affairs uh, of of the hospital, and it, you know it's made really clear. Um, as you're as you're going around and and seeing the perspective of of the orderlies and the other hospital staff, uh, you know there's 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 in, incompetence, there's negligence, uh, there's understaffing. It's very clear there's under under funding. You know there's obviously like limited uh, facilities. Uh, the 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 care that's being given to the veterans is 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 kind of subpar at best. And uh, it's it's made really you know clear that this is this is not a place of of optimal healing. Right, they off would the bat. be aim- they, they would be lucky if they got like a subpar rating. 
Right. Yeah. Subpar is a goal for them. Right. To imagine a hospital uh, functioning in this way in this day and age uh, is is absolutely unthinkable. Um, yeah, he's staring upside down at his vomit for two hours, just screaming for someone. Right. And yeah. all the all the orderlies are. I I want they're blamed in this movie, but I have to imagine they were just overworked to the point of numbness and burnout Mm -hmm. and they couldn't afford to really care anymore like that's all that they had left was Mm -hmm. just shells because they're understaffed they're under equipped they can't do anything other than just pump drugs into people and that's just a horrible state for everyone it it sucks their souls and it it clearly has a traumatic effect on veterans he comes back expecting to be treated like royalty because the town's having parades for veterans and you know he's an american hero and he's like well i'm an american hero and he's just not getting the treatment or respect he feels that title and he's due when he was in like the field medics tent he was prepared to die i believe the the chaplain comes over and begins to read him his last Mm -hmm. yeah he said when he was 17 and still on the you know back back in high school like i'm prepared to go over there and die if i have early on in the well, i guess we'll call it overall a rehab process um i'm also when i mentioned that the cheery soundtrack i believe it's uh, a brown-eyed girl starts playing as they are like rinsing, <laughs> rinsing oh my god bed yes. out. yeah that was um, <clears throat> like a car wash of veterans that was quite quite uh shocking yeah yeah uh, you've got you've got don mclean's american pie with some of the physical therapy rehab uh you've got when uh, the person in the bed next to him has i'm guessing a prostitute come by i don't think it was an orderly uh or you know i i'm, I'm assuming that's what it was but my girl is playing when mm-hmm. you know during that so so you're thinking okay this is a step this is one step in the process to recovery but I don't know, like, it takes us a long time to get to even the idea of recovery, especially with the setback, right? Um, which, <laughs> that's, which, a, that's a way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, so w- er, before the setback, when he's saying, um, I'll walk again, and the doctor's saying, there's a really good chance you'll never walk again. Yeah, no, no, I'm going to walk. I want my leg, I'm going to walk. Um, well, no, the doctor won't. was was not optimistic at all he was just yeah. captain blunt at that point he goes so you will never walk again that's right uh he said you know will i ever be able to have children no but we have a really good psychologist here like right. oh man all right that's the truth um so, so he there's a guy i think his name is leon but somebody starts screaming uh while they're all watching tv oh yeah um, and so and it's like, oh, Leon's going nuts again, and the orderlies don't care. We've seen that Vietnam veteran trope. Is it fair to call it a trope? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. yeah. But very quickly, before he leaves the hospital, he's kind of, when, when he's upside down in the bed and he's yelling about, about looking at his own vomit, we see him becoming that already. Um, and oh, I, yeah. start, I start losing hope that the recovery is going to look anything more than that. Yeah, I think after Ronnie suffers, or yeah, it's very clear the the transition between his kind of uh, hopeful persistence, uh, where he's you know he's stubbornly kind of fighting against the the prognosis of the doctor, uh, who has told him that you know your your spine is severed, you're not going to be able to walk again, and you know despite that he's still really 
earnest in this physical therapy and trying to you know re rehabilitate himself uh, slowly in the in the hopes of one day you know be able to get some sensation back uh, then all of a sudden he gets like a, a really bad injury that you know prolongs his time in the hospital even longer uh, and I, I think just the fact that or it seems like it's made uh, clear just by virtue of the fact that he was being so uh, stubborn and persistent he's actually made his situation worse and I think that actually you know that time uh, and th that he's forced to be there even longer and the realization that he kind of did it to himself uh, just trying to do everything that he knew how to do which was push himself to be you know uh, as hard as possible to be the best that he could uh, wasn't enough uh, and this is something that he was out of you know he was actually out of control of and there's nothing that he could do about uh, that's where I think like the transition becomes really clear uh, that you know as you said he kind of starts to to fall into the trope of kind of like the uh, the the disillusioned uh, veteran uh, slowly. Yeah, this entire first half of the movie is kind of his struggle to accept reality of how things actually are. He sees the sad soldiers, but he's like, "Yeah, I want to be one. I want to fight for the country. I want to stop communism." And then when he gets to war, ah, it's not that bad. I I signed up for a second duty. It's my it's what I need to do. And then I'm gonna walk again. And then if you don't mind me talking about him coming back you know the brother we mentioned he's playing the times they are changing we see this big parade everyone's cheering now he's back in a parade and he's being rolled through and people are flicking him off and they're giving him terrible looks and just awful chance they're yelling and, at him to die <laughs> yeah and so again he's not accepting the reality of America's sentiment about this war, this was right about the Tet Offensive. It was 10 days after he was shot. The Tet Offensive really changed the perception of the war. Yeah, he's not accepting that either. He's like, I'm a hero. You need to recognize me. I've got the uniform. Give me my respect. And it's just not the reality of America at this time. Like coming to grips with the choices he's made and how it's led him here. But he's still thought that yeah well it's unfortunate that i got that i i think in his head he would say that i got crippled whereas other people lost their life uh, i i think he he would say i still did the right thing that my my credit is due um and to a little boy a parade is really what you want uh and then what we learn is that like he's getting um he's talking to steve he's talking to steve the burger man uh at the burger shop uh, which has a name that i forgot <laughs> uh, and, and and he's saving all the money. He's telling his his employees are doing a great job, and he's he, he's got the girls wearing the mini skirts, and he's uh, he, he's got a plan. He's expanding. He's he's the guy that stayed at home, college. He's got this this life, um, and he offers a job to uh, Ronnie, and uh, Ronnie is just thinking, yeah. So we're gonna go in in this partners. And that's when, I guess, it, it's not a victory, but that's when uh, Steve, no, you got to start at the ground floor. Uh, you can be a cashier and work your way up. Maybe you can be a manager someday. But um, clearly he's not being given what he thought he should be given, even from his friends. But he, he still thinks that what he did was right. So he, he's yeah. really fighting with that. I think it's interesting about that scene that uh, also because, um, you know, it seems like whenever that offer is being made to him uh, by Steve, uh, Ronnie, you know, he he definitely seems to hesitate. It's, it's It seems obvious that, you know, it's not really like 
a, like an optimal offer to him and then you know he mentions that he has you know his his uh his veteran stipend to actually fall back on and you know his his friend steve uh, it's something that really stuck out to me actually like kind of uh, belittles him for you know relying on or like you know thinking about the possibility of relying on that instead of you know working that's charity uh, working money. with his own. yeah exactly that's charity money uh and and uh, that you know he should work up and you know and, and pull himself up by his bootstraps and and, and do something with his hands uh, and, and earn his own living uh, and i think at that point i'm thinking we're gonna start seeing more of reality versus expectations and how it settles in for uh COVID. he uh when, when he's giving that speech on on stage and i think the banner even says ron kovic local hero um yep mm-hmm. and and when he's in the car a continental ooh, a continental um <laughs> when when he's in the car that's when you start seeing he, he's getting a little bit of the 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 flinches from the toy guns and the firecrackers um you're starting to see that, but it, you get that he's on stage giving his speech about you know, the boys. The morale is high, and we think that we're going to win this war. And I have a heart full of, and he starts to hear the baby cry, and we know what that's in reference back. Mm-hmm. I think uh, yeah, I think uh, that second parade scene also is you know his birthday because he was you know born on Fourth of July. Oh yeah, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> and. Um, no, that second parade scene really brings it all full circle, right? Because it's everything about the way that it's shot and the sequence of it is, you know, it mirrors the the scene that Ronnie uh, remembers from his childhood. It's for now he's in the perspective of the veterans that he was looking on uh, at, you know, from from the sidelines of the parade, uh, and he's, you know, he's the person that's flinching at the at the the fireworks going off, and all of a sudden the but the the demographic of the crowd has changed completely to. Uh, to what he remembers when he was a boy, uh, instead of just kind of like you know good good uh, patriotic Americans, uh, as, as I guess they'd be perceived, uh, you know lining the the streets and and cheering him on. Uh, now there's also like the confluence and mixture of all these other people. There's hippies. Uh, there's you know there's there's really uh, really uh, vocal protesters, and you know there's also you know normal people that just you know look on with with a mixture of, of appreciation and, and pity and sadness at him. And so like, you know, uh, from the other perspective, you know, Ronnie's having to take all this on and it's, it still seems like he's fighting against, uh, you know, this, this, the expectation of, of everything of what, uh, he should be and his sacrifice should have met and, and the reality of, of, of him coming on how things actually are in the United States at that time. Yeah, it's a culmination. You find out his brother is anti-war, mm-hmm. and there's the reaction to that of, how dare you, this is what I went through. And he's going through a lot of, you know, that phony sentiment of everyone keeps telling him, you look good, you look good. And that's what they're saying, because they don't know how to react to someone that is now paralyzed. That's just what they say. So he gets up there to make the speech, and you see the confidence kind of fade from his face as they're listing off. I think there were three, three of his friends that didn't come home, and there's some guilt in his face when they're listing off those names, and then they're like, well, he made it, and he, <laughs> yeah. he, he didn't make it intact. There was one thing that I wish they hadn't done. I'm sure Oliver Stone just did this as a stylistic choice, as a criticism of other parts of American history, 
But at one point, there's a hallucination during this speech. And there are two people, and I think they're both white, but they're in Native American headdresses. And Oh, yeah, I remember that. And then it fades back to the crowd, and I looked. I'm like, there's no way there's just two random white guys in Native American headdresses in a 4th of July right. rally, right? And there weren't. So that that was something that I think he injected in there to try and make a point, but it honestly was a little bit distracting to me. It didn't land with me. We didn't need to add extra anguish, suffering here on top of the guilt. <laughs> I, I, we didn't I, need I, to kick the puppy. So. Yeah, but also this. <laughs> but yeah, and also and also this. Um, well, when uh, I think it is right after that speech on stage that he runs into Timmy. Timmy was one of his friends from high school, and you know takes him out to go drink and let off some steam. Um, and we, we don't really, it doesn't, it's not a, uh, slow progression. Uh, really quickly, he starts being seen as a jerk. Uh, we, we see that almost right away. You guys remember any amount of time before he's, uh, being loud and brash and yelling about Vietnam? The scene was, uh, the, the transition, at least, uh, in terms of the progression of the movie was pretty immediate. Um, yeah. I, it, I think the only, uh, cue to the audience that some significant amount of time might have elapsed was that, uh, was that, uh, Ronnie's hair, uh, gets, uh, decently longer and he has more facial hair in the next scene where he's seen acting a little bit more brashly and drinking and and uh being i guess a little bit more belligerent at the at the bar that they're at yeah the mustache and everything yeah he i mean he attends with donna this was kind of a weird transition he goes from donna to i think a bruce springsteen song but you see some of that reality set in of the cops just beating all these protesters and their sad music they're also got an angle of beating the camera but yeah goes from that to the contrast of the very clean cut veteran i think he was from world war ii uh, says he's he was at iwo jima arguing with ronnie about how they're treating their service and the world war ii vet you know everything for him at least i don't want to say it wasn't traumatic because iwo jima was likely traumatic for everyone involved but he's been able to process it and he seems to be handling it. Whereas Ronnie is just not. Yeah. You ain't the only Marine in here, man. You picked them. They didn't pick you, Quit you're pissing and moaning. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that sounds like a Marine. Yeah. And he follows that up with December five. Um, so they, they're about to, you know, they're about to get into it. It is the culmination of this night that led, that leads him home, uh, drunk. And that's when he starts waking up the neighbors with his screaming, and he is, uh, he's really uh, opening up uh, about the things that he feels and uh, the truths that he grew up with that he is now having to fight against. And I'll, I'll start with how I feel about this. Um, he, he rolls into the house, and his parents are still awake. Now, I think at this point, he is maybe 24. Um, but he comes home uh, very late at night. The parents are still awake. Um, I'm assuming that they have to do this all the time now because he lives at home again. Another thing that you have to kind of put yourself in the place of. And so you realize that, like, well, yeah, of course, the parents are happy to have their son home, but their entire life now must change in order to accommodate. So he comes home uh, blasted drunk. 
uh, and immediately starts taking the crucifix off the wall. So he, he is kind of in attack mode now of all the things that he grew up with, of all the things that was supposed to be right. Um, that tirade, clearly this is affecting his mother really hard. Um, this was maybe my favorite, my favorite scene. I know we, we have a superlative section, but I think this was a moment where I'm like, okay, this is now turning to the latter, but maybe the latter hour of the movie is, and now we're going to see what happens after he leaves Massapequa. Um, do you guys feel the impact of that scene as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, as you said, this is like the big confrontation of all the ideals that have been instilled with him uh, throughout his, his life. And of course, in, it happens in his childhood home. Uh, where you know it's the place of uh, you know the the instilling of all those de- uh, many of those ideals in the first place, or where they're reinforced. And we saw early on in the movie, you know, the scene of them sitting around uh, his family sitting around the dinner table, and the comments that you know his mother and father make, uh, and all the you know the influences that he's getting around, and, uh, and as well as the religious influences that he's having. And and you know, go back to this scene. Uh, where, you know, Ronnie's still dealing with all the, you know, he's dealing with the trauma that he's dealing with, and he's living in this house where uh, the, all these, you know, ideals that have been instilled with him are are still glaring at him, and, and, the contra- and they contrast so sharply with the experience that he's had uh, that he just has to, you know, it seems like he just kind of bursts out of it uh, and fights, you know, lashes out against uh, everything around him. Uh, especially, um, you know, his mother who, who can't deal with it uh, at all uh, or is, is kind of intolerant to it and has the least patience for it is the one that seems to be most affected by, uh, by this outburst. Yeah, he's just attacking everything that she is. And Caroline Kava, who's playing Mrs. Kovic, I get frustrated often. I'm a person of faith myself. I get frustrated how people of faith are displayed in a lot of movies because she's very just dogmatic of everything it's very simple oh god's will god's will things like that and but he is attacking that Uh, dustin you're right attack mode he's going thou shalt not kill mom and then he attacks someone thou shalt not kill women and children and goes further and says god is as dead as my legs yeah and then to cap off i don't I don't know a word. I need a thesaurus for when you rip your own catheter out and start screaming penis in a very threatening way. Um, I think when he says, when he starts tugging on the catheter, um, the, the family responds like, oh no. And, and I think one of them says like, not the catheter again. Something like that. As if yep. like this wasn't mm-hmm. the first time that he's had an outburst like this. This is a journey. And this is when he decides to, to I guess he's, He's asked to leave, and that's not the right way to put it. I, I don't want him in my house. Uh, he, he can't live there anymore. And his, uh, You had said in the plot summary that like, they send him down to Via Dolce. Um, yes. And, and, and I, didn't, I didn't realize that was like a joint decision. I, I truly didn't know exactly the context of how he got there. Um, but that's the next step on this journey, is down to Mexico, wh- where things, some things are easier. And some things are, you know, coming to grips with them uh, are, are certainly harder. Um, now, with this, this area down here is when we finally get to see our boy Willem. Creepy, creepy as always. Like, <laughs> this did, I was like, oh yeah, there's Willem Dafoe. 
But man, he's just I don't I don't even know how to describe Charlie. He is just accepted this debaucherous lifestyle. He's got a ridiculous like could audition for Kiss tongue. <laughs> yeah. And when Willem Dafoe is doing that with a very long tongue, staring straight at the camera, just slowly like licking a la Gene Simmons, that is Green Goblin esque <laughs> flashbacks. Yeah, yeah, this this entire crew. I mean, it seems like they're happier, but they're drinking themselves to death. They're on drugs. They've got prostitutes, and Willem Dafoe's in a wheelchair. Charlie's in a wheelchair. So he's just talking about, you know, grabbing their breasts and having one in one hand and coming up with some form of compensation and oral sex and things like that. And it's just like, okay, I I guess this is a reality. It doesn't seem healthy, but this is where they're this is described as a haven. His Ron's dad describes this as a haven to send for <laughs> vets. Yeah, yeah. And in and in a way it is. Uh, yeah, I, but imagine a religious family like they don't know <laughs> what's going on here. Yeah, or the uh, word haven is loosely interpreted. Yeah, right, right. It's after Mexico that's when he goes to visit the family of Wilson. Am I yes, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He comes back, and that's the first thing he does. Or... Yeah, yeah. And I think at that point he's on his. I think maybe his like redemption, um, like maybe self-reflective redemptive arc is there. Is that maybe that's when that portion of the story starts? But we've got we got to get through Mexico first. So I'm just going to start with something memorable from from that period, which is um, how understanding the prostitute is of his condition. More understanding than any doctor or any orderly or anybody uh, willing to listen to him. She is maybe the most like open and caring, maybe empathetic person that he's been in contact with since getting back from Vietnam. Would you guys agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I That scene uh, or that uh, sequence of scenes also stood out to me uh, a lot. Uh, she's, she seems like the first person that's really kind of treated him, you know, like a human being since, you know, he's been in his condition and uh, to the best of her ability kind of, you know, simulates a normal, you know, sexual uh, encounter with him. And it's something that, uh, it seems really clear that you know Rodney gets like a lot of fulfillment from just because he's he's being treated the way he's always wanted to be treated as a man. And I think this kind of touches back uh, to like the themes of masculinity that I brought up at the beginning of the movie that he's been it's been kind of drilled into his head since he's been young, and you know he comes back uh, as a young man in the prime of his life, and no he can no longer you know do the things that young men uh, like to do and are you know tend to do. Uh, right. It's only until this moment, uh, you know, that he's actually able to, you know, to uh, experience that, you know, that exuberance, at least to some degree. Uh, I thought it was really, uh, really, uh, you know, I, I will go and say that I thought this scene was actually quite beautiful in the way that it was portrayed. Yes, it was. But it was also so difficult because you see the pain and almost resignation when she's putting her hands down his pants and he's just like, it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work. And she's explaining but it's also you see Ronnie fall for her because of all the things, uh, Andres, that you just mentioned. She she's good at her job. This is kind of a he's hoping for a pretty woman type situation where 
it's the prostitute <laughs> with a heart of gold. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas she's she's really good at her job. Yeah. She knows how to keep employed. But he falls for her because, like you said, she's the first person that has acted real to him or treated him with real respect rather than sympathy. But then he sees her with another man, another client, and that just sends him spiraling back to the point he's getting kicked out of a place where it's kind of like last chance you. I I have no <laughs> idea how you get kicked out of this, but him and Charlie both managed to get kicked out of Mexico. I That's think he... Really <laughs> <laughs> he kicked out of Mexico. Well, I, I mean, I... He, he's not doing so bad at that point. He's just sticking by Charlie, who is getting kicked out for uh, for decking that one prostitute. Um, yeah, don't do that. You don't that do that, like, guys. Uh, yeah, it seems like Charlie is experiencing a lot of the the same, you know, uh, torment and, and kind of physical inadequacy that uh, that Ronnie experiences, but kind of to a you know a, a deeper, more hardened degree. It seems like he's been there for a long time, and this is something that he thinks he's kind of learned to cope with. Uh, but it's, you know, it's really clear with, you know, the way that, that Charlie, you know, deals with his prostitute, making fun of uh, his, his his handicap, uh, that he doesn't have this under control. This is something that, you know, is still is, is still burning him. And uh, it's, it's you know, one of the reasons he's in his, his pain spiral uh, that he's in and living in the situation that he's in, despite the fact that he puts, you know, projects this outward position of, of, I'm enjoying myself. This is the greatest life, uh, you know, that I could have. Uh, I, I get to drink and, and have sex with prostitutes, you know, and, and this is, you know, what else could somebody want? And it's, you know, it's very clear. And I think uh, Ronnie realizes it that, uh, that, that, you know, this isn't, if I spend enough time here, I'm going to turn into Charlie. And I think this is like really his rock bottom where, you know, everything after this in the movie is him climbing out of this hole because I think he realizes that he doesn't want to be that way. Oh, but there's one more place for him to go before. He gets <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I, and, and before we uh, get there, and I, Chad, I want you to talk about it. But um, th- there was one guy that when he first meets Charlie, right after he sticks his tongue out and swallows the worm, um, some dude rolls up behind him and goes, "Don't stay here, man. Get out." Yeah, yeah I do remember that distinctly. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that's such a like impactful type of thing. Like, this is your chance now. Um, before it goes viral. But yeah, he does have to crawl out of somewhere, right? Always listen to that dude. Doesn't matter if you've met them before. If someone comes up to you in a haven, this is every horror movie ever, and says, get out, listen to that dude. Turn around. <laughs> you know, if your car keys are on the table, call an Uber, whatever, get out. That's a, that's a trope you can bet the farm on. You know, I would I would listen to that guy in a heartbeat. Without a doubt. <laughs> Doesn't uh, on- matter. Andres, do you have any rules like that? I've got one, which is, uh, I, I took this from Jack Donaghy from 30 Rock, which is, never follow a hippie to a second location. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, no, I can't say that I do. I'm, I'm going to have to look out for it in the future, and if I, if I ever do find one out, I'll let you know. Sure thing, or if it comes up. Yeah, so yeah, they, uh, the, uh, the, last, the last leg of the, of the Mexico journey is uh, trying to go to another, another place with a whorehouse. Um, but uh, the they think or Charlie thinks that the cabbie's taking the wrong place. They get into a fight. Um, once again, some of these scenes, uh, a, a fist fight from guy in the back seat to the cab driver in the front seat, and he's yelling in Spanish, and you know he can't stop cursing up a storm. And I mean, it it would be humorous if it weren't for the overall general tone of like this is a a highway to hell, and or I think 
it was also described as purgatory. Um, but yeah, they, they, they reached this culmination of, I think the idea is who had it worse. I was yeah. say, do you remember what they're arguing about? Cause I do. It, yeah. It, yeah, by all I, means. I, be, I believe it's, uh, did you kill babies? Not just, did you kill babies? Because Charlie is basically saying, ah, you didn't kill babies. But then it becomes how many, how many? did you kill? And Charlie will never respond to Ronnie's kind of pressing of like, well, how many was it? He never says, but he keeps saying, ah, Ron, you didn't kill babies. You didn't kill babies. And we know Ron did. We don't know what's going on with Charlie. But it's, again, Dustin, you hit it. It should potentially be funny in any different context. Two guys basically slap fighting in wheelchairs. Oh, you could see like Will Ferrell and John C. Riley doing <laughs> <Right>? this, <laughs> and, yeah. and it would be funny. But here we have drunk Vietnam vets reliving trauma, comparing how many children they've killed, and they get in a slap fight over it. And it's just like, okay, this is officially the Dwayne Johnson rock bottom to this movie. <laughs> Still after after they're found, uh, Ronnie says, "Are you okay?" And Charlie wants nothing to do with it. Like, F you, man. Uh, (laughs) once we get to the part where like he's redeeming himself and things are better it's like the movie like we know the movie's ending the point of the movie wasn't let's show you all this dark stuff to show you a super like awesome rise afterwards i I think you're supposed to live in the pain for this movie that's what makes it an anti-war movie yeah you're never confident that he got it together he gives a speech and he embraces someone that opposed his original philosophy altogether. But yeah, you, you're not confident that he's quit drinking, that he's got things together. Yeah, he wrote a book. But okay, apologizing to one family, is that really the road to redemption? Yeah, we were given the experience more than the resolution. I, I, have, one, I have one thing I wanted to say that like, gave me a, a satisfaction like in because the the movie does end you know with with it's not as bad as it was and it's getting better but but i i agree with you we don't we don't know how better it gets we just know that it wasn't getting kicked out of mexico again (laughs) (laughs) um but the, the thing i would say that really gave me satisfaction and andres if you have one uh have it on deck but mine is when they're trying to retake their position at the republican convention like we're gonna retake the hall all mm-hmm. of the protesters are taking orders better than the Marine. Because yeah. he's, he's barking out, we're going to go this way, we're going to go back in, and we're, it's like they're charging a different style beat. Mm-hmm. And, and, these, and these people are listening to him. Uh, that, I think was, it was, that was pretty cool. I thought that was a really good showcase of like uh, uh, Ronnie's new found, or, or new confidence and, and acceptance of, of his position, and it, it kind of showcases his ability to uh, to affect change and take a position of leadership, because it's, you know, it's real clear in this scene that, like, he's giving orders, and, you know, he's coming up with, like, a, I guess, like, a counter, a counter-protest plan to, to kind of take back the position outside of the, the convention uh, where they've been kicked out by the police, uh, and, you know, he's really effectively leading, you know, this, this charge, uh, and it, it seems like here that you see like the first glimpses of, of his newfound purpose. Uh, yeah. I think it's done pretty effectively. Yeah, and that, not to 
jump too far into the political deep end, but I, I thought this was an interesting, obviously Ron is giving his story here, but it was an interesting contrast from Oliver Stone of he does the RNC convention, then goes straight to the Democratic National Convention, and he presents them in two different lights. And there probably was, I'm sure there was very different reactions. The, the Democrats at this point were, had shifted tonally. But it's interesting that there's just the embrace because Vietnam was started under a Democratic presidency. Uh, it was um, Lyndon Johnson, and then it goes to Nixon, and Nixon winds up embracing it. But it's it, it's just a very interesting contrast to the two, and just the shift of you know from Kennedy to Nixon, where these parties wound up. Well, I think there was a time when you say like Kennedy to Nixon. I would say it was Kennedy. I, I had the discussion once before where it was there was a time when people had Kennedy's picture hanging up in their houses. And oh, yeah. Like, like I think that was the last time that we had um, a president that was loved by most. Yeah, especially for Catholic families. That was huge. Totally. Absolutely. You know, this was an embracement of, okay, now we're going to be accepted. Catholics in America have not had the easiest time. <laughs> He was the first Catholic president, is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, it was a huge thing of, is Kennedy going to do his own thing and do what's good for America, or is he going to listen to the Pope? Like, he'd be some little puppet state of mm -hmm. uh, the papacy. <laughs> so, yeah, this, this was a real thing to particularly the Catholic population of America. Kennedy's picture was right up there with Jesus on the walls. You're right. We, we, we took you along the journey that we took following Ronnie. Uh, where where he went, the, what he felt. And I think now it's time for us to kind of step back to just overall the film, our movie superlatives. Uh, and we'll start with the MVP of this film, Andres. Who is your MVP? I would really say all around that uh, Tom Cruise just does a really phenomenal job in this in this role. I think he, he plays, you know, a really wide range of, of, uh, of parts. He's able to capture really well uh, the development of this character and and kind of express a really wide range of emotions you know the anger sadness uh kind of manic uh manic you know manic expression uh you know laughter and, and it, everything that that you can think of is is really well done uh, i think tom cruise's range it was shown really well dad you're mvp ron kovac himself uh kovac he co-wrote the story and I think being willing to display yourself in such an ugly light, that's really hard to do. Like, I consider during the change one thing, which we'll get to, like, if I were Ron, I would say, put something in there that makes me look good. Like, this, right. is, this is an hour and 40 minutes of me not being a very likable human being. And, <laughs> and then yeah. you're really not sure if I'm likable in the end. What is happening? So, yeah. For having the humility to bury yourself like this, Ron Kovic. That's yeah. a yeah. That's a very very good position. Like yeah, and you're, as you said, you know, there's it's there's the ambiguity at the end of the movie that you don't even know if you know his upward progression is going to continue, and the you know the vulnerability of putting himself in that situation and you know, being portrayed in that light is is really remarkable. For me, it is uh, Oliver Stone himself. But I feel like this was put together with all the right pieces all the right spots, all the right uh, emotions being shown 
things getting worse and progressively worse, and then I'll never be able to shake the term getting kicked out of Mexico. Uh, (laughs) You're welcome. The progression of this movie was great. Now on to the Best Supporting Actor, Andres. Best supporting actor would I I would say he kind of played a minor role, but his uh, you know his friend Timmy, the actor that played him, Frank Whaley, I think he did a really yeah. good job of of kind of playing his uh, his foil and 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 kind of being the the cautionary figure that that kind of tries to influence him to to be more careful as you know as as he's uh, going you know downward in this in this uh, this the struggle that he's dealing with. And I think uh, he does it. It's very subtle the way he does it, but uh, the, his facial expressions, the, the, the few things that he say uh, and the way that he says them, I thought they were very effective in kind of conveying that role. Good choice. Yeah. What about your choice? I really like Jerry Levine. He's Stevie. He's the one that, you know, that's <laughs> other than partially the jerk, attitude in the end and the sexual harassment that's kind of me i'm like yeah i'm gonna go to college and not be shot at Uh, you know you can be patriotic all you want that's uh uh, keep me here and i'm gonna do business so i really liked his character and i liked his scenes where kind of felt like yeah you're you're a bit prescient about what's gonna happen here yeah uh, i'm a huge fan of him as well uh, my, my my best supporting actor is one with a uh, few lines, but I think a presence, Raymond J. Barry as Mr. Yeah. Kovic, the dad Kovic. I, I think that there's something about how he portrays a father figure of someone like like this, this tragedy, this this life, this event that has happened to his son uh, is is a nightmare uh, to the person's happening to, but especially to your parents. You always want what's best for your kid. And so seeing how he responds and deals with uh the 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 emotions and the uh reality of of ronnie son was really well done even with very few you wonder what he had seen because he was very hesitant and tried to discourage ronnie yep. from oh know, yeah he, he's from the generation that doesn't talk about it you know there's a lot of that even with current veterans he does not talk about his experience, but you can tell very few lines, but great facial acting. I yeah. don't really want you to do this. This isn't what you think it is. When, he, when, when Ronnie comes home, he says, like, you can't drink in this home. But what he's doing is he's trying to honor, I think, what, like, his wife, like, wants. And mm-hmm. I think that's what, a lot of, that's what a lot of people of a certain generation is, is. Like, there's a whole generation, and honestly, a lot of people should heed that, is that, like, when you when you are acting in service to your spouse like in that sense like there are some people that want only that they did their hard work they came back and they don't talk about the war and now they're going to do their best to like make the household uh and i thought that was portrayed by him yeah i think uh mr kovic is a is a really great choice as well i think that was like a close second to me because the way that he portrays as uh, as chad mentioned was like the hesitance uh, that he kind of, uh, you know, he he shows with his facial expressions and the way that he he leaves out certain things and pauses and and uh, and the kind of outward support to some degree, but kind of you know skepticism and wanting to 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 protect his child as much as he can uh, without really like you know uh, uh, ruining his ambitions. I suppose uh, was was really masterfully well done and the way that he's kind of like the silent supportive figure. 
that Ronnie has in his household uh, once he comes back and he's living with his family as well. You know, he's the one that accommodates uh, Ronnie by like altering his bedroom, you know, to have a bigger door. You know, he installs the uh, he installs like the, the the new fixtures in the bathroom so that he can uh, you know be more comfortable using the bathroom uh, independently and you know just the way that he kind of does it like subtly and matter of fact uh, just so that Ronnie could be as comfortable and feel as normal as possible was was really uh, was really excellently done I think. Yeah, yeah, Fa- family was his number one to him, um, and all just by running you know local grocery store. N- n- nothing nothing above that. No no higher dreams than that. He's He's reached his blue heaven. Uh, hidden gem for you, Andres. Uh, hidden gem is an interesting uh, term because he doesn't really hide very well. And Willem Dafoe is always my favorite every time <laughs> I see him uh, anywhere. Um, I, I, <laughs> it's hard to really pick anything right, uh, yeah. apart from that. And uh, I, I think just because Willem Dafoe is just such a, a you know, he's such a dynamic actor. He can do, you know, just about anything he sets his mind to. I've seen... Uh, I've been on a Willem Dafoe uh, kick the last uh, few months. I would say if, if if a movie comes across, you know, my my desk or my com- my computer, or whatever that that has Willem Dafoe as as a credit somewhere, um, I will watch that movie just to be able to see him for a couple of minutes doing something absolutely uh, bizarre, or remarkable. Uh, and uh, I think that's that applies here as well. I think he did a, you know, he's definitely not the only great thing about this movie, uh, but he, you know, he absolutely shines in the role that he's in. His horror filmography ensures two things every time: that it's going to be weird and confusing, and you're going to see him naked at some point. <laughs> <laughs> like just strange projects. Yeah, we have to tune in next week to Defoe Movie Roundtable. <laughs> uh, hidden gem for you chad fine i'll give an actual answer to this okay the ron kovic he actually shows up in this film he is the veteran in the very beginning the childhood parade he's on the far he's close to you on the screen being pushed in the wheelchair and he flinches at the sound of fireworks so that is the real ron kovic oh wow he's the one huh okay uh hidden gem are gonna go to uh two hidden gems we've got wayne knight and john c mcginley in this movie uh both stopped by for a cup of coffee um just (laughs) just a little bit at that convention uh recast this is a tough one Uh, this is always the toughest one uh andres you you have you you gotta do it you gotta replace (sighs) one cast member Kara Sedwick uh, as Donna, I would say is is my choice uh or kira uh, if i'm mispronouncing that uh, I think I think she does a fine job. Uh, I think um, you know she she portrays the the range of emotions that she needs to in the position that she's in, and you know you see her kind of take on the 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 role of of the kind of the the, the countercultural you know protest movement enthusiast uh, pretty well. But I think she doesn't really bring any remarkable anything remarkable to those those roles, and I think the transition is is like too subtle. Uh, that uh, it, you know, it could have been something that that might have been portrayed by somebody else a little bit better. Like if it was somebody else, it might have been more memorable to the overall movie. It, it might I be think so. One yeah. of the more one of the least memorable things is that particular relationship. Yeah. Uh, Which yeah, and it's given so much significance at the beginning of the movie, as far as like you know Ronnie's childhood development, that it's it seems like it's almost like an afterthought, and she doesn't actually uh, isn't in any of the final scenes, if I recall correctly. 
right. uh, apart from like one of the, I, she might've been at the, no, she wasn't even at the protest nope. at the RNC, was she? No. Mm-mm. Yeah. No, her, her arc kind of ends at Syracuse. It's, it's it, she's no Jenny, right? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, to the point of, um, you know, in, in the defense of, of the, the role that was being played, uh, a, of course, some of this is, or a lot of this was, was taken, you know, from Ron Kovic's actually life. And you can't presume that, you know, they would make such a, a big uh, uh, edit to, you know, uh, to his actual life story and, and just to have the continuity of like a romantic interest throughout the movie. But, you know, it's it, it's just right. something that, that really stood out to me. I'm going with an extremely hot take here. I mean, Ron Kovic gave Tom Cruise his bronze medal, his bronze star medal. He appreciated the performance so much. I'm recasting Tom Cruise. Wow. <laughs> I know. I would rather have Johnny Depp here. I feel that they're close in age and Johnny Depp does drunk mania better mm. than anyone else in the industry. Now, Tom Cruise is mm. crazy. He was actively campaigning to get a nerve agent put into his legs to temporarily paralyze him. Yeah. So that's insane. But yeah, John, Johnny Depp can go straight laced American boy to Captain Jack Sparrow uh, and yeah. <laughs> on a dime. <laughs> Um, I think, I think I agree with you in a way. Like I, I, I would want to see that. I, I think I like seeing. Um, w- when the decision was made to go with Tom Cruise, uh, Oliver Stone had just seen Top Gun, mm-hmm. and he said something like, "That kid has everything. What if we took it all away from him?" And that's why he decided to cast Tom Cruise. In. I think. Uh, I think it's funny about Johnny Depp is that I've, I've. In my lifetime, I've seen him play mostly pirates, and I forget that he has more dynamic, <laughs> you know, ability, you know, acting ability than he could do other things. But, uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. I think that would be a good choice. Yeah, would, Hunter yeah. S. Thompson. That's right. Fear and loathing in Massapequa. <laughs> my recast is, uh, and I actually, um, it is, it is Timmy. My recast, Frank Whaley who um, I only recognize as being Brett from Pulp Fiction, who is enjoying a big kahuna burger uh, <laughs> in the morning. I'm going to replace him with a 20-year-old Paul Rudd okay. as, as, Ooh, his, okay. as his buddy. Um, I'd, I'd like to see... I, I think we have seen Paul Rudd in an excellent mustache in the Anchorman movies. Uh, <laughs> it would have been three years earlier than his acting debut. Now let's get to the shots and the scenes. Uh, the shot... The best shot of this movie, Andres, what comes to mind? I would say the best shot or my shot, uh, the shot that stands out the most to me would definitely be the uh, the scene of Ronnie, uh, Ronnie's confrontation in his parents' home when he's coming home drunk. Uh, because uh, if you, you, know, you pay attention to it, he's actually wheeling around the house. The camera is somehow sp- suspended at a fixed point, you know, at a distance in front of him. And so you get this, like, this really interesting... Uh, contrast between like the the focus on him and his body and you know the kind of like the whirling movement of the house around him as he's kind of like spinning so i think it's like really well done kind of portrayal of kind of like the deliriousness of of drunkenness uh, as he's kind of like you know swirling around and and his uh, his everything is kind of blurry uh, as he's as he's going through this uh you know going through this this catharsis of of, of you know just like venting of rage uh, so I thought that was like, as far as the cinematic choice, that was my favorite. Chad, what about you? Best shot. Toward the beginning, there's a shot of 
it's a slow walk in the initial parade with the veteran missing his arms. And the crowd starts to fuzz out in the background. And the veteran slowly turns towards the camera and there are just lines of pain across his face. And you've got the music swelling too that's making you feel feel these emotions. But I think no other shot for me encapsulates what Oliver Stone was trying to say as that guy's facial expression. So maybe Hidden Jim as well, but yeah, just the pain emphasized through that shot. I agree, and I, I, I probably said pain a lot in this podcast. Uh, for me, the most memorable shot, I, the low shot of him uh, on stage uh, with the striped awning above him in the blue sky above, uh, where he, he loses he loses track of his um, focus from the baby crying and the helicopters going. The use of the patriotic colors and themes with the trauma associated with it, um, I think, was not like there was one big pivot, but it was a good pivoting point for me. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go a little bit further with the best scene, Andres. Best scene? as. <laughs> The best scene, you know, I hesitate to 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 say the, the 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 at least the scene that was the most powerful for me, just from an acting perspective, was also him and his his childhood home. But as far as like a, a you know for for the sake of of uh, uh, of a variety, I will say my other uh, favorite scene was um, the my other favorite scene was uh, the scene that uh, he spent. Uh, with the the prostitute the the first one that you know was able to you know uh to to treat him like a like a a normal human being and then gives him like as a catharsis experience i thought that was like like a very powerfully emotional scene uh and i I thought it was it was done very well for what it was uh you and me yeah you and me have selected the exact same thing that's that's exactly what i was gonna say uh i i I will just add that um once again we're seeing a different type of pain um before he's kicked out of his house and, and took down to Mexico, he I believe he says something along the lines of, "Who's gonna love me? Who's ever gonna yeah. love?" Yeah. Oh my goodness, yeah, I, that broke my heart. I want to be a man again. Uh, and and he's uh, de- dealing with that is 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 just so difficult. And and so that scene, he's sobbing. You know, he's he's crying during this version of lovemaking, and uh, it, it that is so powerful. So I, I'm with your choice. Chad, what about yours? It's hard describing anything that happened in this movie as best scene. I feel like it's different shades of awful things that happened, but well done. But I'm going with the wheelchair fight scene. It's pathetic. It's sad. And it's probably the lowest point of Ron's life. And it's... The linchpin of the recovery. It's where he starts his redemption angle. So for me, I think just bearing your soul and saying, I got in a fight after getting kicked out of Mexico in a wheelchair with another paraplegic. <laughs> you just said who killed more babies. You just said the wheelchair fight. And if you just say the wheelchair fight, that sounds funny. I, but it it was so <laughs> just like dark and, and yeah it was the, the it was the it was the Dwayne the Rock Johnson rock bottom yes <laughs> best uh, wardrobe or makeup moment do you have one there chat tom cruise is a handsome guy we talked about him him coming off of top gun so i think overall just 
particularly at the club when he passes out. It's impressive how ugly they managed to make Tom Cruise. The mustache did him no favors at all, yeah. but the the ragged thin hair and everything like that. So kudos to the makeup department for that. Somebody post Vietnam said, "This is what we're gonna look like," and and people listened to him in terms of the mustache and the long hair and the bandana. Go ahead and give me the Vietnam War veteran. Uh, That'll be four dollars at the barbershop. Thank you. <laughs> and like that's that's they and and it especially on him who we know has this kind of all American look, especially off of Top Gun and Cocktail, all these these movies as a as a hot young stallion. And then we get this. They really make it. They age him up really well. Uh, for me, my uh, my my best wardrobe or makeup moment is actually it's a hair moment. I think it's it's really unfair to say the redeeming thing of uh, Kira Sedgwick. But her hair, her hair is just so very <laughs> on point. That's what. That's the thing that I was like. Either that was your hair, or your hair is just perfect. That curly hair, uh, big, puffy volume, big, beautiful, gorgeous hair. That's all I'll say. That's Made the... you want to take a nap in it, no doubt. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the uh, the 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 different flavors of of the uh, of the veteran uh, aesthetic, uh, as you mentioned, were pretty well done. Because especially with even with Ronnie, but also with all the other veterans uh, that were portrayed in the movie, as Ronnie goes from like long hair, almost kind of mullet aesthetic, whenever he goes and sees Donna for the first time in New York or in uh, you know in the city. Uh, and then, you know, all the way to, you know, the as he was described on the floor in the bar, uh, the kind of really scraggly, ugly, as in, you know, it, as he said, it's difficult to make Tom Cruise look ugly, and it was very effectively done. They did it. Uh, they did it. it, was, it <laughs> but just the, as kind of like an overarching uh, theme, I will say just like the, the transition of costuming that was done, uh, because you cover a really wide era of of uh of time in in this movie going all the way from Ronnie's childhood which i guess presumably would have been uh the the 50s early early 60s uh going into his you know his enlistment in the in the 60s and people wearing the 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 quintessential goofy you know back to the future uh you know as clothing <laughs> that people were wearing at the time uh, and that's what it made me think of Biff and his stupid friends in the in the and uh, the and the soda fountain, you know, reading the Playboy. They were literally doing the same thing. They were like reading a Playboy in, in that movie. <laughs> but anyways, um, you know, and then the transition all the way to like the the seventies era, where and and have being able to capture so many different like pieces of Americana, the the hippies and uh, beatniks and 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 protesters and and uh, black power movement and and everything that was captured, I thought was was done. There wasn't anything uh, that that stood out to me as out of place or poorly done. So I think just like kudos to all of it. Yeah, well, if it, if it's so good that it's like not noticeable and that that's for the right reason, like that means you know job mission accomplished. Yeah. All right. Uh, you got to change one thing. One thing about this movie. What do you do? change one thing uh so something that i i noticed about the movie and i i think this was done uh you know i'm sure there was a strategic reason why this was done uh with the the film film adaptation of of uh you know ron kovic's actual life is that the the pacing of the transition of the scenes is in my favorite uh, because there are some scenes where one scene to another it'll be uh, a lapse of one day or a few days or a week and then there are some scenes where you'll transition 
uh, and just based on a wardrobe change or the fact that Ronnie or another character has longer hair or facial hair all of a sudden, you're, you have to understand that like a significant amount of time has elapsed. And so I think the you're able to get the full picture of, of Ronnie's life. Uh, but the there's there's a certain abruptness that kind of uh, I had to was a little jarring and I had to adjust myself every time a time skip happened uh, and and try to kind of put myself in a new headspace to adjust to uh, the version of Ronnie that I was about to get because it was like noticeable that it was going to be somebody different just because of like these really abrupt costume changes and scenery changes and it was just something that um, uh, I think some better transition. Uh, of of some intermediate scenes where you see like maybe some kind of uh, transitory uh, uh, behavior or, or or trans you know transition in his appearance that kind of bridges those gaps uh, would have made it a little bit smoother for me. Uh, but I understand why they did it the way they did. At the same time, you know, it would have made the movie uh, excessively long if they fit every chapter of his life. Uh, and uh, I think they got the sweet spots, but it was just something that uh, kind of uh, jarred me a little bit. You know what? That's a good point. Is I I um as I think they spent a perfect amount of time each in each of the places they spent, but getting from one period to the next period was sometimes rushed. Or if you if you looked away, you didn't know if it was one day or if it was one year. Exactly. Yep, yeah. I'm with you. I think there was another issue. Uh, yeah, I had that same issue with the adjustment bureau at the beginning of this year. Yeah. Um, Chad, what about your change? One thing. We talked about it earlier, and it sounds like the scene didn't land with anyone. So if we've got three people in here that can agree on something here, remove the guys dressed as Native Americans in the middle of his speech. Like, why, why do you need that non sequitur in the middle of everything else? You've got enough here, Oliver Stone. Yeah. Right? Maybe that was his personal band. Uh, soapbox that he needed to throw in but you've got enough and it detracted from a very important moment yeah i second it then uh for for me i would like uh to actually this is a swap this is a switch i want uh tom berenger who plays the recruitment marine i want him in the role of the commanding officer who essentially is telling Kovic to like sweep the friendly fire under the rug like that didn't happen that's 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 what I want to do I just want to I just want to swap those two um I'm not changing the movie that much I'm just changing who is where that's, that's mine right. all right uh and then we'll finish our, our our superlatives we'll finish our superlatives with Chad what is your best quote I had a mother I had a father things things that made sense do you remember things that made sense? Things you could count on before we all got so lost? What are we going to do, Charlie? What am I going to do? Oh, wow. And the killer delivery, too. It's uh, a good quote. Uh, for me, it was actually referenced um, by Andres uh, just minutes ago, um, referencing when he comes home. His dad says, eh, put a wider doorway in. I put a shower for you too you can get in here pretty easy oh and i put some handles on the toilet for you let me show you this new stuff i bought for the other room that's the quote because that's the best portrayal that dad can give to ronnie as i love you son 
this is this is how dad's communicating like this is love from dad i have taken these steps i've done this for you he's breaking down and crying in that scene um yeah that was touching yeah touching. andres you have a best quote one you remember so i will say the uh the scene where uh ronnie's mr kovic is bringing ronnie to bed after he's had his outburst and and fought with his mother in the house and woken up all the neighbors when he's he's just you know bawling his eyes out talking about his all of his fears and of uh, you know of dying alone uh and being loveless because you know of a sexual dysfunction and things like that the things that he said is like nobody will love me that that was uh, probably kind of the line that was like the most jarring and impactful to me. I'm proud of the maturity of this podcast for no one saying penis, penis big penis. effing <laughs> erect penis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> listeners at home, I think, know the score. Yes, we, we, we all <laughs> pretended and we picked very impactful and meaningful things, but it was also that one. Oh, man. Yeah. That was the funniest scene. How about that? <laughs> was uh, it? Yeah. Uh, we didn't have to bring it up, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, hey, let's, uh, let's rate and recommend this. Lowest being 0.5 stars, highest being 5 stars. How would you rate this movie, Andres? I would say uh, between a 4 and a 4.5 uh, out of, uh, because as far as a war movie and as far as an anti-war movie and just a piece of, of cinema and the culmination of, of writing and acting and everything that was, was put together for this film was really, uh, there isn't anything that stand out, uh, bad or, you know, off putting about it. And on top of that, there are some, you know, elements of it that are actually really fantastic. And I will say that's something that's really enjoyable. You take something away from it, uh, that I think it deserves to, to, to be at a high bracket. And out of out of habit, I don't believe in giving anything five stars, so I will say 4.5. Oh, that, that's interesting because that's the exact attitude I came in to when, when I started with the Retro Movie Roundtable was how difficult <laughs> it would be to ever give a five star. Um, and I did. Uh, detail-oriented listeners will know that I did that once, but you'll yes. have to figure out which one it was. Uh, Chad? So this is the part where I get to be a troglodyte. I'm giving it two stars. I did not enjoy this movie. I think it's really important. I think it's exceptionally well done. That doesn't mean I like it. And I have a really, really tough time recommending this to someone who isn't a diehard Oliver Stone fan. I, Oliver Stone is someone, he has more misses than hits with me. So... Technically sound, technically brilliant, lighting, great. But personal opinion, two stars, didn't like it. <laughs> awesome. We No, that's, exact, that's exactly how you feel about this movie. And I, I came in with just as this movie by itself. Um, and I, knowing nothing about it, I actually settled on uh, 4.5 myself. Uh, wow. And I, I settled on it at, at 4.5 because uh, I think that knowing that it's biographical is is really interesting the point of the movie if it's under that war slash anti-war and this is an anti-war movie and we know what what is meant to come out of your viewing of this and uh, i think this is a movie where like there wasn't much of this movie that makes you feel good uh the artist is giving you something to feel being able to experience the what what this movie gave me 
there there were some things that I I thought Kira Sedgwick I thought the the that particular part of the movie was I'm not going to say unnecessary, but considering it didn't lead to much, and it, I think its main point was to show his disillusionment with what would happen afterwards, uh, it, it was maybe not important to include. I also think that while the first 28 minutes of the movie um, were well done, that could have been the first five minutes. Uh, didn't, have to be, didn't have to break that two-hour mark, uh, or t- it didn't have to be 224. Um, it was it was just a little too long for my taste, um, but otherwise, as far as what um, I think the goal of the movie was meant to like, if you're the watcher um, and you're you're hearing uh, Tom Cruise's character, you know, love it or leave it, love it or leave it. He's that character first, and then what he turns into. Um, I think maybe that just that just that journey of where he started and where he finishes is something that uh, that I would rate high and would recommend uh, as well. I'm glad that we took the time to to watch it all. Um, but we need to start thinking about next week and the movie selection for then. Chad, can you help me pick out our movie for next time? And now for something completely different. And now, <laughs> that's right. Now for something completely different. Option one, Monty Python's Life of Brian from 1979. Born on the original Christmas in the stable just next to Jesus Christ. Brian of Nazareth spends his life being mistaken for a messiah. Option 2. Monty Python and the Holy Grail from 1975. King Arthur and his knights of the round table embark on a surreal, low-budget search for the Holy Grail, encountering many very silly options. And option 3. Monty Python's The Meaning of Life from 1980. Uh, The Monty Python comedy team takes a look at life in all of its stages in their own uniquely silly way. Chad... What option are we going to go with? <laughs> Just the tonal shift from, <laughs> from pain, this movie. Pain. And now for something completely different, Monty Python. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to laugh. We need to laugh. So the best way to laugh is to hit Monty Python and the Holy Grail 1975. Cannot wait. Yeah, that sounds good. We need to recover a little bit after this. All right. Well, hey, Andres, thank you. This was an awesome suggestion. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. And I did too, regardless of where our ratings landed. I'm glad we took the time. Hey, I did too. I love trying (laughs) new things. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash RetroMovieRoundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thanks for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Chad? War. War never changes.